Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time we have together in your house, and I pray as we open up your word, you'll help us to see um, the importance of what it is to walk with you each and every moment of our lives. And where we slip up and slide and we fail, it's um, not always that we have walked away from you, but it's that we have let our guard down, we have stopped pursuing you, we have stopped in our discipleship and our growth and our connection to you through prayer and through your word. And I pray, Lord, that we would see the importance of growing in wisdom, which is growing in an awe of who you are. Help us to do it, Lord. We love you. Amen. So we uh, decided to start a walk through the book of Proverbs, which most of us, if you've dabbled in reading plans or read through the Bible plans, what happens if you're the, the McChain or McCain, McChain, I always forgot to say it, the Scottish guy who has the original read, read through the Bible plan was a little bit of Old Testament, usually like a chapter in the Old Testament. Then you'd have a, maybe a psalm, and then you'd have maybe a proverb or two, and then you'd have some New Testament. And you would run through, in the course of a year, you read the Old Testament once, the Psalms, the Proverbs, and usually the New Testament at least once, if not twice. And if you're like me, um, and I hope you're not because the mold was clearly broken when I was made, that I, I had a hunger for the history, a hunger for the connection, a hunger for the stories of God in old and new and seeing those connected. But when it came to the Psalms, it reads mostly like poetry, and I have an appreciation for poetry, but I don't sing. And so, like, I, I love the lyrics of songs, but I don't necessarily have to hear the melody. And so, like, I appreciate the lyrics of the psalms and the worship that's in there, but that's not typically how God comes after me, unless it's David Crowder, because he's the greatest musician that's ever been born. Um, and then, uh, or it, I get into the Proverbs, and it becomes very much like every other history class or any other leader out there, any self-help book, every bumper sticker, every coffee cup verse was in the Proverbs, like, oh, okay, well, you know, watch out for the, the nagging wife, you'll go to the roof, or whatever, you know, that's in there, we'll get there, that's several months away, but I never really focused in on the Proverbs, because I wanted to hear about the gospel, I want to hear about Jesus, I want to see the connections, the Old Testament promises, and the New Testament promises kept, I want these connections made, I don't know how the Proverbs can necessarily help someone come to know Jesus, and that was me and my ignorance. And so as we were talking about something to dive into and, and looking at kind of the cultural landscape that we're in, um, I just have felt this, maybe I'm just becoming an old man. And that, that's perfectly possible in this, but I feel like there's been, become a lack of wisdom, a lack of common sense, a lack of being able to read the landscape of our culture and dive through and pick through what is true, what is accurate, and then there's so many people are trying to find a way to live. How do I live this life? How do I do this? And they're looking at a million possibilities of answers that are usually online or on some video channel, whether internet or on cable, instead of going to the Word of God. Instead of saying, I have a wisdom that comes first from my understanding of God's love for me, second from my continued relationship with Him through prayer, through the Word, through fellowship, and then all of my life's decisions will come through that kind of lens instead of going to a bookstore or to the Amazon store and finding some self-help book. Three ways to understand this better, six ways to know this better, and instead we have, if we really believe that this book is the, the love letter written to us and the answer of life and points us to the creator of it all, shouldn't we quote 
the Bible or our wisdom come from the Word and less from random people that have book deals. And so that's kind of why we're going through the book of Proverbs. And it's going to allow us to speak about a lot of different things and a lot of different topics, digging into culture and lots of stuff. But so the book of Proverbs is going to be our launching point into that. The book of Proverbs is a collection of writings from King Solomon. If you know anything about King Solomon, this is a unique. We have a unique perspective knowing that when the, Psalm, when the Proverbs, I say Psalms again, that's not what I meant, Proverbs, as we go through Proverbs written by Solomon, um, there are actually three other, two other named authors and one collection in the Proverbs that aren't necessarily all Solomon. But for the most part, the Bible gives him credit for all of it. Now Solomon was King Solomon, son of King David, and when he comes into his um, reign as king, he writes the book of Proverbs. Now before he becomes king or early in his leadership, he writes the Song of Solomon, which is his love letter to his future bride, and we see this beautiful love letter of what he's written out to the woman he loves. And then we see the book of Proverbs, which he says to my son. He's written it to his son, but the audience, I'll show you in a second, is very broad past his son. But he writes often in it, to my son, and he's trying to impart wisdom to all people, but specifically he's writing to his son. And then we see in the book of Ecclesiastes where he essentially is apologizing to his son for ignoring everything that he wrote himself, given to him by God in the book of Proverbs. He shipwrecked everything. Um, he chased after false gods. He chased after pursuits towards women and wealth and experience instead of letting God be the center of his life. And so we, as we go through the Proverbs, you have to keep in the back of your mind that Solomon himself ignored almost everything that's in here. So if you want a case study of here's the wisdom of God and what's it look like when I go away from the wisdom of God, it's the author of this book himself. It's not just you and me looking at each other. When we talk about wisdom, we point at each other and go, oh, that's you. You have no wisdom. That's, that's not just here at the church. It's everything that's existing in this book and in this man who's written it. We see a few different characters pop up through the Proverbs. We see the wise person, someone with wisdom, someone who's following after God. We see the simpleton or the simple, which is someone who is kind of pre-devoted to God. They are lacking in commitment or they're lacking in a full sold out for God, but they are seen as simple. People need to be trained and brought alongside so we can help them to grow. And then we see fools. And fools are consistently in the book of Proverbs, those who reject God and reject the wisdom from God. They don't have a, a healthy fear of God. They're considered fools. And so that's kind of the background, the basis of what we're going to be walking through. So I'm going to read the first seven verses of chapter one. We're going to break them down. Um, the first nine chapters in Proverbs is essentially the introduction. It's a why wisdom, why it matters, why we need to pursue and then when you get past chapter 9, you get into all of the snapshot, bullet point, going after them um, comments. Okay? Verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we start taking a look and breaking this down. I want us to understand there's a royal reign and continuation of what David has done. David gives us his son Solomon to lead. And there's tension and confusion, and we're not getting all the backstory. And then after Solomon, it's a train wreck. And so we see after Solomon, he reigns from 971 to 931. He's, he has a time as king. He has time to lead and to do and all these amazing things. And he also has time to cause chaos. And the next king doesn't come along until 715, a couple hundred years later. And in that middle period is chaos. It's a chaotic time of when everything that had been laid out through King David to his son Solomon starts to go crazy and go sideways because of a pulling away from God. Solomon stopped having the holy awe of God for a season, caused terrible tension between him and his son and his daughter, and there's internal civil war. There's, it's, it's the stuff that Lifetime movies are made of. Maybe not Lifetime, maybe Netflix by now, because it's pretty R-rated. And so you have lots of just despair. And when Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes, you get that despair that oozes out of that book. That, he, that everything is vapor. It's the steam on your coffee cup. Nothing matters but your relationship with God. It's a vapor. And so we get to see, as we go through Proverbs, what a holy awe of God looks like, but we also have to be cognizant that when we go aside from this, things are can be pretty bad. In the book of Kings, 1 Kings 4, um, we get that the historically, Solomon is seen as very wise, and we get a number here in the second part. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. And then he says, he spoke, oh, one too far. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So we get a number, 3,000 proverbs, 1,005 songs coming from Solomon. There aren't 3,000 proverbs in the book of Proverbs. So this is not the exhaustive teaching of everything that Solomon had done. But during his time, it was understood this man is wise, wiser than anyone had ever been around, that people came from all over to see and sit with King Solomon, seeking his wisdom. You all know the stories, the, the Queen of Sheba, all these stories of people coming to seek wisdom from Solomon, from the reign and rule of, of the Israelite king who had a fear of God, and that oozed out of him. And that's something we should have a desire. We, we want to be wise. Not just smart, not just knowledgeable, but we want wisdom. Because knowledge is great, but if we don't have a way to apply that with wisdom, we're really good at trivia night, but we're not very good when life crashes around us. We're really good at the test and understanding and going to Sunday school class and filling in the blanks, but we're not very good at how to deal with our personal relationships that we have around us. Now, you can be both. 
that would be the goal, though I could be both. I could be really good at trivia night and really good at relationships. But if we focus so much on the knowledge and not on the wisdom, we can be in some pretty dire straits. The first verse, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, lays out this royal decree, gives us a picture of a king who is seeking wisdom. And we know from verse 7, it's a, it's a healthy fear of the Lord. That's where wisdom begins. And wouldn't we want that of all of our leaders? That all of our leaders led in such a way, and name the organization, political, business, that you would want someone who is seeking after God and has a holy fear of God and is going to lead out of that understanding that they are not everything. That God above is everything, and I submit myself to Him, and as a leader submitted to God, then I'm going to lead out of that knowledge, out of that relationship with God. Before I uh, became a teacher, I had a long list of retail jobs and manual labor jobs. It's, I think one night, the family and I, we were writing down like how many jobs I had before I got my first teaching job, and it's at least a dozen. I sold everything from car parts to worked at tractor supply company to sporting goods stores to I sold knives. Imagine that. And I sold I worked at UPS. I managed Blondie's cookies like I did all these retail jobs. And in all of them, I had a boss. And the bosses that I had great respect for were ones that were willing to get in the trenches, would teach, would equip, would tell, would help. They didn't they didn't boss me from on high. They were willing to get in the dirt with me because we had a shared mission. The bosses that I, it's probably why I had so many jobs, but um, <laughs> the bosses that I had no respect for or we didn't want to be around were the ones that just said, do what I say. Just do what I say. Here's the job, do what I say. They weren't willing to encourage, weren't willing to give me the space to grow, to learn. And then if I was just lazy, then that's on me. But I, it, I bristle when the boss would just say, do it this way. But why? I mean, this worked, this what? It wasn't good. It doesn't work in my house that way. Like I have two different kids who are very different in personality. And I can't approach them the same way when it's time to talk, to correct, to have a conversation. And I don't just walk into my house. I mean, there are the times as a parent you just have to say, do it, because I say so, because... I'm the adult, and I pay for this, and I'll make, never mind. So, but most of the time, it's for growth, for connection, for, I, they're different, and so I have to approach them differently. I can't just talk to Savannah the way I talk to Eli. I can't just talk to Eli the way I talk to Savannah. It would be terrible. It's not how it works. And so, there has to be a wisdom, and so we get verse 1, is not just a declaration of who the author is, it's also giving us a status. That this is from the king. This is the leader of a nation. This is wisdom from the leader. And you're going to see the leader of a nation say that the beginning of wisdom is a fear of the Lord. This isn't just a guy writing a self-help book. This is the leader who is going to follow, we hope and pray, is going to follow what he says. That wisdom is key and that he is making a proclamation that a fear of the Lord is what matters more than anything else. 
The same word for proverb there, if you look at the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the first Greek translation, um, the same word for proverb is used as the same word for parable when we're talking about Jesus' parables. Now, that's par- proverbs aren't parables and parables aren't proverbs. But I just want you to see that there, there's a technique when we read the parables and we study the parables, you're looking for the core truth of that story. Now, because if you're into inductive Bible study and we get analytical into those things, you will try to break apart a parable in such a way that you're trying to figure out who everybody is. So you look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, you're like, was the priest really this? Is Samaritan really that? And the person on the road, is he really this? And what's really happening here? And what's the and I I really geek out on that too. But you have to remember at the core of a parable is a is a there's a simple, singular, often message that is for that parable. And you'll get lost in the weeds um, when Jesus is talking about. Lazarus, and you have the man in heaven and the man in hell and the beggar, and, and everyone tries to break this apart and go, well, can I talk to the people who've gone before me? Can I talk to my family members? Is this, do they hear my prayers? And people start to microanalyze this entire parable. And the point of that whole parable is that eternity is forever. Death is one-time event, and you don't have time to make up for lost mistakes afterwards. And when you have chosen hell, you don't unchoose hell. There's a singular point to that parable. Same with the Proverbs. When we're reading through the Proverbs, we're going to have a tendency to try to pick apart every little piece. And we're going to have to fight that over the next year to find the core truth of each section we look at. Okay? He then continues in verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. That wisdom is a kind of knowledge that helps you know and see what's going on around you. It talks about instruction, wise dealing, righteousness, justice, equity, that we have an insight because of our knowledge of the word, our relationship with God, and it gives us insight into what's happening around us. That you can't just have the word of God memorized, dedicated to the study of the word. And then when something comes up, you throw the word completely out the window and just run with your gut. You run with what you know. We can't have a secular, sacred divide in our life. It isn't, this is church life. I got my small group. I've got my accountability group. I'm studying the Bible. I'm doing my reading plan. I come to church on Sunday and I serve. And then five days of the week, you're not even considering God, not even thinking about him, not even trying to follow the wisdom that's found in the word. You're just, you're just living life as a split personality. Here I am when I'm around the church folk here I am when I'm around these folk. Now, I'm not saying that you don't change your language, you don't change things a little bit, because that's just knowing, reading the room. When I'm at church talking about God is way different than when I'm at the gym talking about God. They don't want to work out next to me while I'm preaching a sermon to them. That'd be funny, but they don't want that. But there are moments in the gym, in relationship, outside of church, where God comes up, wisdom comes up, I'm dealing with this, I'm walking with this, I, 
I'm struggling with this. And so then you're able to have those conversations with people because you're applying the wisdom that God has given you for knowledge of the word and your relationship with him into other people's lives. That's why it doesn't, 99% of the time, it does not work just to start shoving Bible verses down people's throats and your ideas of street evangelism, of public preaching. Now, I've seen it work. I had to do it when I was working for a campus ministry. We had to go down to downtown Madison, Wisconsin, and do street preaching. I'm okay running my mouth. I don't have any problem with that. But I think what's more effective is when you're building relationships with people while you're also speaking truth to them. There's a time for the down and dirty. We don't have time to mess around with this. For me, in my current position, it's usually when people are in hospice care. There's no time to build a relationship. There's no time to get to the, there's no time for that. So when I get the call, I walk in. People that don't know me usually like, oh, the pastor's coming in. I know what's coming. So the ice is already broken. Hey, I'm Mike, I'm pastor at First Christian Church. Your family called me. They'd like me to come visit with you. And I need to know, and they would like to know where you are with the Lord. But I don't do that at Walmart when I'm checking out. Hey, thanks for ringing me out. I mean, even though now it's mostly me checking myself out. But if I go through the aisle at a, a restaurant, thank you for serving me well. Um, I'm about to leave, and I'm going to give you this tip. I'd like to know where you are with the Lord. Can we talk about Jesus right now? Now, maybe there's a time for that. Maybe your server has shown something's going on. You can feel it. There's a time for that. That's happened too. Do you have the wisdom to discern when it's appropriate? That's the wisdom we're asking about. That's the wisdom we're seeking from God. That's what Solomon's writing about here. That we're going to have a wisdom that gives us insight. When you, can you walk into a room and read the room? Or are you so oblivious to what's happening around you that you just walk in and it's like, oh, it's Bible study time. And the room is very clearly in need of grace and time and space and conversation, but you've just got to get through the lesson. Do you have the wisdom to see what's happening, to be able to navigate this? That's what we're asking for. It's not just about filling in the blanks in the workbook for the study. Some of you guys have been in, or education majors or teachers or been in education, you know why you pass out the sheet in your class with the blanks in it so that people pay attention because they're hurrying up trying to get fill in the blanks and they'll stop daydreaming. We used to do it here sometimes too. You have your sermon notes and you have your workbook and you're doing it or you have the sheet, but then people are falling asleep anyway, so I just stopped making them. <laughs> now, when you're in a guided study by yourself, you've got the study workbook and it's you and the Lord and the book and... It's, a, it's an educational tool. It's a help. It's great. But don't forget that filling in the blanks is not what the key is. The key is that it's driving you to the word to know. You need to have the wisdom to know what's better. It's time with God and his word. Equity. Oh, and to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. This is a command to us all to help those who aren't as far along as you in your faith journey. You help people come along. You can't have an expectation of biblical wisdom to somebody who's been coming to church for a month. 
or makes a public profession of faith and to tell you that they're a Christian, but they've never read the Bible. They've never spent time in quiet. They're very new to faith. You don't expect them to walk like someone's been walking with the Lord for 20 years. It should be a motivation to us who've been walking with God for seasons of our lives that we are to pour into people's lives. He says simple. He doesn't say stupid. He gives us the grace to have that space to grow. Solomon then continues, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Give them space. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. You're, you're not done learning. You don't get to stop the study of life. You don't get to stop the increase of knowledge. It's always, um, in any profession that I've had, whether it's retail or education or in ministry, one of the things that usually grates on me the most, well, there's a lot of things. I can't say the most. That's a strong word. Something that grates on me is when people kind of play the game of, well, you know, I'm not able to learn anything new. I've, I've, I already, I'm set in my ways. I'm unable to do something different. I can't, I can't unlearn that. I can't learn something new. This is the way we've always done it. Oh, that's infuriating to me. Like, what part of life do you get to just stop? Like, we all, life moves forward. Things happen. Things technologically advance. Things progress. And yes, you can have the longing for the good old days. In the last week and a half of dealing with a highly computerized vehicle that wouldn't do what I wanted it to do, made me long for the days of the quadrajet carburetor. Uh, made me, I longed for that. I can fix that. Quadrajets are okay, Murray. But I can't just do that. That's not a thing. I can rant, I can rave, I can go buy a 1969, I can say this is what I want, I can do all these things, and I have to move on. Technologically, studying, learning, knowing, knowing things, you have to move forward. How to study the Bible, how to be in relationship. We're always increasing in learning. You can't just stick your head in the sand and say, I'm done. I'm 46. I've learned everything I need to learn. I'm done. No, you don't get to do that. Solomon's telling us, let the wise increase so that they can understand what's in front of you. If you gave this book one stab and it confused you. You have to continue to go after the Word of God. Maybe you're in a weird place. You weren't receiving it well. Maybe you need some help. Maybe you're in that simple category. You're not an idiot, but you need someone to come along that says, hey, let me, let me show you some things. Let me show you how I have studied the Bible. Let me show you what's helped me in this. But you don't get to just peel back and say, I'm done. You also don't get to peel back and say, I'm done serving. You don't get to say, well, you know, I've been serving in church for 20 years. It's time to take a break. You don't get to say that. Now, you can say, I'm done serving in this area because I'm done with that. But then you pray for God to open up new areas, new ways to serve, to help, to mentor, to teach, to pour your guts out into something else. 
I really don't ever want to go back to teaching at a high school. If the Lord calls me to that, he's going to have to show me a huge amount of grace and patience, and he's going to have to write on a wall because I'm not going to listen. But I can't say I'm never, ever going to do this again. I can say, Lord, I have a preference. I don't want to serve there. Show me a place to serve here. We grow in our wisdom. Lastly, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's not just fear. It's really a reverence, an awe of God. Be careful when you hear the, see the word of fear of the Lord, because this usually brings a connotation of Zeus on a cloud with a lightning bolt going to smite us. If you saw the movie Bruce Almighty, when he says, oh, great smiter or something in there, he's, he's picking into, he's, he's pulling from a, a general conception that God is so angry with you that he's always looking for a way to trip you up and to hurt you. That's not the God of the Bible. Yes, the God of the Bible can't stand to be in the presence of sin. Yes, we are born sinful. Without us receiving a new heart and be regenerated in our lives with our relationship with God, with his sacrifice on the cross being imparted to us as the good news of Jesus, we are doomed. But when we receive that truth, we receive the grace of God, we accept his love and that beautiful smashing of our submission and his pursuit of us were his were his and that creates in us an awe kind of like when you get on large landscapes get to the top of medicine bow peak or at least up to libby flats and you stand up there and you look out over this whole space and you feel really small and you're in awe of god you're at a, a concert last, this last week. I got to go to a concert at Red Rocks, and Crowder's there, and we're singing, and it's amazing, and we're just at the right level at the concert, at the, the amphitheater, to where you can see the stage, out over the stage, into the city of Denver, and you can see I-70 going off into the distance way out. And you're just, I'm in awe. I'm in awe. Like, look how big this place is, how big this city is. There's so many people here. We're in this tucked in little cozy mountain amphitheater worshiping God. And there's a whole, there's a, at least a million people, if I play the numbers game, probably a million people in the city of Denver that don't know the Lord. And here we are tucked into this little cubby hole of a mountain singing praises, feeling really small, really thankful, really grateful that he's pursued me. Like that's, that's the awe of God we're talking about. He's going to forgive me? A punk kid at 17 who wanted nothing to do with God? That he chased after me? That he sustained me for the last 30 years? In my imperfections, in my failings, in my pushing him away, in my misunderstanding of not knowing, he still wants me? <laughs> then I'm going to have a reverence, a holiness, an awe of God. That that's the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools don't want correction. Fools don't want called out in how they're not pursuing God. A fool pushes God away. A fool pushes away friends who are seeing things and pointing things out. That's what a fool does. 
Someone who's seeking wisdom has a humility of heart that says, I'm not complete. I'm not whole. I'm not done growing. I'm not done needing God to show up each and every day in my life. When you see the arrogance, when you see the lack of correctability, the lack of willing to have the conversation, things that are misunderstood, when you see that so full of yourself, that's terrifying. And all of God helps us. It helps us to know that we're small, he's big, and that he loves us even though we're small and we fail him. And as we grow in wisdom, we can handle the stuff that's really hard to deal with. It's not just about knowing the Proverbs. It's not just this goal to attain. It's a lifelong pursuit. So if I'm honest, there are some books of the Bible that I understand because I've read commentaries and been taught how to understand them, but I don't like them. The book of Job, I don't really like. I understand it. I understand that there's a, a message for me to hear that a reliance on God, a trust in Him, that a righteous man is a man who is going to, no matter what comes, what storms come, whatever rages, is going to still worship God, that even the loss of his entire family, he's got two terrible, or is it three? He's got some terrible friends throughout the rest of the book of, of Job are telling him he should just fall on his sword, he should just die, he clearly did this, sin caused this. It's this huge, just terrible exchange. Like, I don't want, if you are my friend and you talk to me like that after tragedy hits, we are no longer friends. And then there's the beautiful part at the end of the book of Job where God corrects his two idiots and tells Job, oh, you think you have it all figured out? Dress yourself for battle, young man. We're going to talk. And he picks this picture that there's an awe of God, that he has authored everything, that he is in charge of everything. He's not beholden to us for anything, but that he loves us. And he restores Job, and the whole book of Job, which historically happens somewhere in the middle of Genesis, is a picture of faithfulness in God in the midst of trials and tribulations and when bad things happen. I understand it. I get it. But I don't like it. And I don't have to. If I was immature, I would say the book of Job is terrible, therefore I cannot trust the Bible because I don't like the book of Job. Wisdom helps me to see that I might not like the book of Job, but God's not asking me to like it. He's not asking me to say it's okay. He's given it to me to be a picture of faithfulness in the midst of tragedy. And that's the whole rest of the Bible. I don't have to like it. I don't have to even understand it all. But it's the very word of God that we are called to follow because we aren't God. And where I stumble and fail and I don't understand, I don't push the scriptures away. I don't push the church family away. I don't push friends away. I have to do an examination of myself and I have to ask God, will you please show me where I'm lacking? Will you show me where I don't understand? Will you please give me some insight into this? And sometimes it's in moments, weeks, days. There's been times, it's been years. 
And he shows up in a random movie. He shows up in a book. He shows up in something I, in a way I never expected him to. I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense now. And then I have this conversation with God, like, could you have done that a little quicker, please? Please? But you're God. I'm not. I get it. But next time. It starts with that awe of God. Do we have a holy awe of the creator of the universe? Or do we think we can put him in our pocket and we just pull him out when we're in trouble? It's not a way to live. And if we're honest, and I know a lot of you, we all fail at this. We all fail at it. But collectively together, we can make pledges, commitments, put effort towards living lives that reflect Christ in every piece of our lives. Are we going to fail? Yes. But we can, take, we can take deeper and deeper steps to God on this journey of faith. You get wisdom by this reverence and trust in God. And you look at the world around us, this isn't anything new, I don't be that curmudgeon. Well, back in when I was young, we, I don't want to be like that. I feel like sometimes I'm getting like that, and thankfully there's some people telling me to stop. When you study the history of the world, for thousands of years, people get swayed by the movements of culture. They get swayed by the latest fad. They get swayed by the latest boogeyman that's under the bed. History is a constant retelling of the same old story. And we see the church has often, where wisdom has flowed, stood against all of those waves. Living in the culture, but not of the culture. Having wisdom and strength and truth on our side, but we have, as a people of God, have to put the efforts towards that. As much as I would like to have a matrix-level dump of information in my head. Some of you have watched the movie The Matrix. How cool would it be if we had that little spot in the back of our head and we just got a plug in. It was like, here's the word of God. Oh, I understand it all. Logos Bible software, cross-reference in my brain. Amazing. Or, gosh, I really wish I knew the history of the world and how this applies and what's happening. Here, plug this in. That'd be great. But I really don't want to be controlled by a robot brain, so I'm not doing that. What we can do is have a thirst for knowledge, a thirst for truth, a thirst for God. Because the goal isn't just to fill all of you up with lots of brain knowledge. The, the goal is that you would be equipped to then share that truth with others. It's been the mission of my life since I started when I taught high school. I, when I taught history, it wasn't for people to memorize names and dates. It was so that they would understand what's happening in the world and they could apply that ability to think critically in every aspect of their lives. And I feel it's the same way as my role as a pastor. The shepherding part is, is very much my heartbeat to be in people's lives and to help. But the teaching, preaching part is my, my goal. And one of my joys in life would be that you all would slowly understand or you would glean how to study the word for yourselves where you don't need a talking head on the stage. Now, I think I do an okay job. I hope you keep me employed. But... What would be a great joy would be there'd be constant conversations of people who are doing inductive Bible study, reading the Word, sharing what God is doing in their lives, that it would permeate all of our lives to the point when we come together on Sunday morning, 
it's just nuance and it's reteaching and some new stuff and maybe some things we can glean together. We're coming together as a church family, but it's not because you're wanting me to do all of your theological thinking for you. It's you'd be grown and equipped to do it on your own so that when you're not on church, at church on Sunday morning, you're applying the word of God in every aspect of your life. That you might not be able to cite chapter and verse why you shouldn't cheat on your wife, but you'll go, you know, I don't think it's wise, I don't think it's good, I don't think it's of God to do this. I don't think I'm supposed to do this. That you'd have the wisdom when you're at Walmart and someone is broken down in the parking lot and you're a 20-something woman and you see this guy who had, looks a little sketchy but you're taking the biblical imperative to help your neighbor, to love your neighbor as yourself, but you're also taking the prudence and the wisdom to say, maybe I shouldn't put myself in this situation. He asked me to get in the van with him. I don't think I'm going to do that. And instead, you call on a brother in Christ, you call the church office, you call me and you say, hey, there's a guy broke down a Walmart parking lot. I, I saw him. I think he needs help. I rolled my window down just a crack and said, hey, you need some help, buddy? Hey, I'm going to call my pastor. And then you call me, and then I go show up. If you just take the biblical imperative to love your neighbor as yourself, and you don't have the wisdom to not put yourself in terrible situations, then all you're doing is following the coffee cup parts of the Bible, and you have no wisdom in it. There's no, you have to have the wisdom of God as you apply the word of God into every situation in life. And so you're going to help the person by calling someone who isn't going to be an Amber Alert. That's what you do. That's how we apply the truth of the Bible to love our neighbors ourselves. We use the wisdom and the shrewdness that we're told to use to then help people in appropriate ways. We have to apply the word to every part of our life. That's the goal as we walk through the book of Proverbs over the next several months. But the goal is that we grow in wisdom and a hunger for Christ. That we grow in a wisdom and a hunger to be with God and to have a deeper relationship with Him. Not just to be filled with knowledge, to have our hearts swelled with the love that He has for us. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the time that we've had together um, in worship through music and through your word. And I pray, Lord, as we go about the rest of our day, that you put in our head thoughts of seeking wisdom. We're really good at researching and digging into stuff that we're interested in, and I pray that you'll help grow in us an interest in knowing you more. Um, I don't want people pursuing the word and pursuing prayer life and pursuing discipleship just out of obligation. I think sometimes it can start that way, and you can use that but I want our relationships with you, Lord, to be turned to a place of joy. We really enjoy being with you in quiet. We enjoy reading your word, even when it might confuse us. We're still going to go after it. And we really enjoy being around people. They're going to help build us and not tear us down. And I pray, Lord, that this church would be that place. Help us to seek you in an abiding way. In Jesus' name, amen.